Welcome to Mission 150, the podcast that tells stories from 150 years of Seventh-day Adventist mission to the world. To find out more about the mission of the Adventist Church today, go to AdventistMission.org. That's AdventistMission.org. We're so glad to have you with us again here at Mission 150. With me, Sam Nevis. And with me, David Trim. Today, we are going to talk about Latin America and the Caribbean, which is huge, with millions of Seventh-day Adventist members across South America, Central America, and the Caribbean. But that wasn't always the case. How did it come about? Sam, it wouldn't have happened without the enthusiastic readiness of church members across that vast region to witness about their faith to their communities. But that is in the last 30 years. Going back into our history into the early 20th century, the Adventist faith was still being planted in Central and South America, and the foundations were laid by selfless missionaries. Today, we're going to be looking at one American family of missionaries, the Baxters, two generations of whom served across what the Adventist church today calls its inter-American division. Okay. The Baxters spent 63 years as missionaries between them. Now, the extent to which missionaries serve for long periods in inter-America is remarkable because the tropics of Central America were particularly arduous to serve in during the early years of the 20th century. If missionaries survived there, however, they often spent many years there and literally did not want to leave even if their lives were in danger. William Edgar Baxter Sr. and his wife Verna who was born Verna Stone, spent more than three decades as missionaries in Central America and the Caribbean. Like so many missionaries, they volunteered to serve overseas in their 20s. As a result, from 1906 to 9, William studied at the Foreign Mission Seminary in Tacoma Park, which... Oh, that's, that's right here. Yeah, it, it was. It, today, it's Washington Adventist University, but originally it was founded as the Foreign Mission Sem Seminary, and for about six years, it was responsible for training people who were to go as foreign missionaries. But there weren't enough students to keep it going, so they turned it into a liberal arts college, Washington Missionary College, then Columbia Union College, and now Washington Adventist University. But back then, it was the Foreign Mission Seminary. Was the General Conference already here? Yes, the General Conference had moved here in the, around 1903. So presumably, they, had, uh, they were close to the General Conference in terms of mission that must have helped. Absolutely. And, and they would have people from the General Conference come and, and, and teach classes for them. Makes sense. Um, and they would have missionaries who had come home on furlough, who had stopped at the General Conference to say hello, and they would go and talk to the students before they went to their respective homes. Mm. In 1909, William graduated and he and Werner were called to Jamaica, where for two years they served in pastoral ministry in the city of Kingston. Then they went back to America, but in 1917, they were called back to the Central American region. They were both 36 years old, and William had been president of the Arkansas Conference for nearly four years. And he was called not to be a president, but to do pastoral ministry in Venezuela, then part of the South Caribbean Conference, but geographically, of course, part of South America. Now, Sam, I think you know that to go from being a conference president to being a pastor would have been seen by some as a demotion. Sure. Um, and not everybody would be willing to do that. And, and not least in the mission field. Not least in the mission field. And actually, it's true that even until recently, 
many missionaries, when they returned home, sadly, um, if they did return, if they returned home with, and they didn't spend their whole lives basically in the mission field, um, very often people in the homeland thought they had to put them in their place. Um, the the idea that uh, you may have been a union or a conference president out there, but back here you're nobody. You have to serve your time again. My father, when he and my family came back from India in the early 1970s to Australia, my father's homeland of Australia, um, he'd been a union secretary. But uh, no, we're not calling you to, to do that. You can, you can pastor a church. Mm-hmm. And actually, when I went as a student to Newbold College in my mother's homeland of Great Britain, the college chaplain had been president of the Pakistan Union. And they'd come back, and again, it was like, no, you can, you can be a college chaplain. That's an appropriate use of, your, of the expertise you've built up in leadership and so forth. Interesting. I, I had not known that. My experience of that is Sam Davis was my senior pastor when I was a, an intern, just finished my master's. And he had just come from South Africa. Um, and I, I think he was a pastor then. And a couple of years later, he became president of the conference, and they saw the experience he had abroad as a positive, as yes. a positive thing that led him to, right, to the administration of the South England Conference. Yes, that's interesting. But there was also the other side of There's it. There's also the other, and maybe, maybe, maybe that way before. maybe that approach of the past has has diminished now, and people are more open to saying if you've had leadership experience anywhere, mm-hmm. it's, it's leadership experience and it all counts. But anyway, so for William to go from being Arkansas conference president to being a pastor in Venezuela, many church leaders would have said, no, that's not for me. They would have continued along the easy path that led higher in the denominational hierarchy while enjoying the comforts of life in the United States. But William and Werner accepted the call to Venezuela. Two years later, William became the first director, today we would say president, of the Venezuela mission. Um, William and Werner served in the Inter-American Division then for 34 years, only returning for good early in 1949 when William was well past the age of 67 and Werner was already 68. So they basically spend their lives... But at least, at least they made it, David. Usually yeah. in these episodes, by now, you've already told about the story of many deaths. So far, they went to into America and they lived. They served their lives. It's true. But as we'll see, that was, that was a little chancy at one point. But it is the case by now you're getting into the 1920s, 30s, 40s. Medical technology is getting better. They're better at identifying what certain diseases are. They can come up with treatments for them. But uh, as we'll see, it was still grueling to be a missionary. And the Baxter stayed in Venezuela all this time, or did no. they move? No, William pastored in Jamaica and Venezuela. Mm-hmm. He was director of the Venezuela mission for four years. Then he was superintendent, again, we would say president today, of the Caribbean Union mission, today the Caribbean Union conference, mm. for four years. Then he was superintendent or president of the Central American Union mission for eight years. He was director of the Upper Magdalena mission, again, we would say president for six years. Then he goes back, he teaches Bible at the Columbia Venezuela training school for a year, was president of the Panama mission for two years, and then was back to the upper Magdalena mission for the last uh, three years. William and Werner lived in Colombia, Costa Rica, Curacao, Jamaica, Panama, and Venezuela, while William additionally spent much of his time traveling in the other European colonies of the Eastern Caribbean 
and the north coast of South America. And in 1949, they only went home, if it was still home to them, because of poor health. A colleague actually wrote with concern that William has fainted a couple of times right in the street. Whoa. So going home averted the the, the outcome if, of a death. If they stayed. But then it was already in his 60s. They were already he, he in was, their 60s. That's right. So. He was 67. Yeah. Um, and actually, the problem by 1949 was not only that Baxter was suffering sustained sickness, it was now he was too old to resist its effects. Because already in 1935, his health had been a cause of concern. Back in 35, he was suffering anemia and tuberculosis and was obliged to return to the United States for treatment only two years after a previous furlough. Reporting on a medical examination, we have these papers in the General Conference archives. As some of our listeners know, I'm director of the General Conference uh, Archives. And in them, we have the papers of the medical examination of William at Washington Sanitarium and Hospital. And the <laughs> physician states that Baxter was suffering not only from anemia and tuberculosis, but from a nerve exhaustion due to climatic depletion and also to heavy work, which most of these men experience in their work. Now, that's expressed in slightly dated language. How old is he at this point? Um, so he would have been in his early fifties. So that's, uh, under a, over a decade before he actually stopped and came home. 15 years. Yeah. And so though that diagnosis is expressed in dated language, what it does is make plain the considerable physical and mental strain that frontline workers experienced in difficult mission fields. Sure. It also highlights their tendency to overwork with that, you know, that, that wording about, He's suffering from heavy work, which most of these men experience in their work. Most missionaries, in yes, other words, yes, yes, are, are, are habitual overworkers because there's nowhere else to go. It's, it's from a different mission field and much later, but I was just having supper with a friend last night who remembered about his father who directed a mission hospital in Southeast Asia in the 60s and how he always slept with his trousers hung up on the back of the bedroom door because he might be called to the hospital wow. at any point. Got to be ready. And that, you know, today we're concerned about doctors being on call for three or four days. Mm -hmm. This wasn't for three or four days or three or four weeks. This was years at a time. So it's, it's much later in a different mission field, but it's still, and it was still the same. And it's still the same today. Missionaries are inclined, almost required to engage in overwork and need to recharge their batteries from time to time. So Baxter serves as a local church pastor, as a teacher, as an administrator. And I think that's it. Those a, are the... a conference president and a union president. Yes. Yeah, so he serves at virtually every level of the church in Central and South and Northern South America. Do we know what Sister Baxter did? Uh, she worked in the mission office. Okay. She, she worked and, and raised the children. Yeah, yeah. And did some teaching in church school. That's, um, well, he needed somebody to support all of yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So committed was William to the work that he always placed it above his own needs. In 1936, so a year after he's treated back in the States, mm -hmm. the Inter-American Division President, G.A. Roberts, wrote to leaders at the General Conference. He wrote, Baxter is a wonderful Christian. His wife's influence is excellent. They truly love the Lord and they love this third angel's message and they would willingly sacrifice their lives for it. And William came close to it, but somehow he survived. During his 34 years of service in Central America, he was nearly drowned. He ruptured his right lung. He broke bones on five occasions. 
He came under gunfire from revolutionaries. Obviously, that was a period when there were quite a lot of revolutions yeah, yeah, yeah. in Latin America. He twice endured serious bouts of malaria. He suffered temporary loss of feeling and limited paralysis in his limbs. And he was afflicted with whipworm. And worms were very often, and anemia are very often, are things that missionaries to Central America very often suffer from. Again, it's due to the climate and, and the things that are endemic in the yeah, region. Yeah. This, this is a list to rival the Apostle Paul. It is actually. Right? Right? <laughs> the Apostle says, you know, how many times he was given the, yeah, yeah. the 39 lashes and he was in right. the sea. And I mean, it's, it's, it's a horrendous list, it's actually. I don't even like to think about it. Right. Some of these things are, are long-lasting. There are the Cots, who are a family of missionaries who William helps recruit to serve in the jungle mountains of British Guyana. And they only serve as missionaries for about five or six years, and then they come back. And a year later, the General Conference is still receiving medical bulletins from, from, from uh, the sanitarium where they'd gone. They were from California, so they went to St. Helena Sanitarium mm -hmm. near Pacific Union College. And more than a year later, the General Conference is still receiving correspondence from St. Helena Sanitarium saying, we're still treating Mrs. Cott, uh, Betty Cott, her name was, for these types of worms and for this type mm -hmm. of anemia and blood disorders. Um, the, uh, the husband had recovered after about six months, but she was still suffering. And eventually the correspondence stops. There's no more in the file. So we presume eventually she recovered. But these are conditions that the broken bones you can have treated. But other stuff and lingers on for a very long time. Absolutely. Are we any better with this overworking today? That's I think, a great. I think we are. I wonder. <laughs> I wonder, Sam. And I, you know, I'll put my hand up and say I'm inclined to it myself. If Amy was here, she would. <laughs> <laughs> That's Sam's wife, for our listeners. Yes. What would she say? Yeah. Um, you know, it's James White dies at the age of sixty, and he'd actually suffered his first stroke in his forties. And if you look at the photos of him on his death, he looks like he's at least 20 years older. And he aged very quickly in his last few years when he suffered more strokes. Mm. And there's no question but that James White died in those circumstances because of habitual and severe overwork. Um, you know, suffering your first stroke in your 40s is not good. Mm. And of course, this is one reason Ellen White receives the health message and has visions about healthy living. That other initially it's to help James and herself mm -hmm. live more healthfully, and Ellen White herself suffers badly from ill health, um, including I think what today we would call depression. Um, so from mental health challenges as well as severe physical health challenges, um, and so if she hadn't been given that the health message and lived it herself, she probably she wouldn't have lived until her eighties, which she does. She lives right. in her mid eighties. James White's life is, is partly spared because he starts living more healthfully, but the one thing he won't do is cut back his, his own work. So it's, it's been a problem for Adventists from a very early start. And I, you know, I am struck by the, the words of that doctor who, who recognize, the doctor recognized that this is a problem for missionaries. And I think for, I think for any church leader, it's, it's difficult for any pastor. And you've pastored, Sam, you'd be able to comment on this. Yeah. A pastor is never not working, right? right? You could be called at any time. It's a, it's a very odd balance of, of responsibilities because on the one hand, you set your own time. 
So you decide when you are going to exercise and when you're going to visit and when you're going to do this and when you're going to do that. But the, for the most, for the more conscientious of us, you are always thinking of the families that need you most. Right. When I came to the general conference, it took about eight months for me to stop wondering about the families I needed to pray for mm. before sleep. You know, that was my constant for 11 years. You know, okay, I need to pray for it. Uh, and then I would go through it and, and think of them. And, and then suddenly I don't have anybody to think of. I'm, I don't have a congregation anymore. There's no one who I'm spiritually responsible for. So there is a, it's a never-ending work. It's always urgent work. Yes. Because if Jesus isn't coming soon, then you lose the urgency. And then you lose everything. Yes. Because yeah. we have an urgent message. Now, if it is urgent, then you're going to throw yourself completely in. That's it. And, and this is what happens to Adventist church leaders from the very start, from James White in the 1850s, all the way down to today. And, and, and of course, the church also tries to save money wherever it can, because you try and put save the money in administration to put it into the frontline work. Yes. And so administrators are called on to do more than, I'm speaking personally now, called on to do more than really one is capable of, do, yes. of, of doing. But one tries one's hardest because this is the work to which one has been called and one feels a sense of vocation. It's not a profession, it's a vocation. But David, I wonder about that because you have the kind of personality that if they didn't put that on you, you put that on yourself. You have, you know... Well, that's possibly true. We're recording a podcast that neither of us needed to. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and it is... To bring is, the conversation back to first principles. Let's here. go. <laughs> you know, I, I, we're both traveling here and back, and we're trying to find the deadlines, and we shift meetings to fit this in because we believe telling these stories really matters. Yes. And I think we need to... The solution, as far as I'm concerned is for us to surround ourselves with people that are going to be ruthless about us taking care of ourselves. Yes. Um, because the, the taking care of others or taking care of the mission without regard to self means that you have less opportunity in the future because you'll be sick, you'll be this, you'll be that, you'll be the other. And we can see, you know, much, many of the stories that we tell over the previous episodes, it was through no fault of their own. But then you meet the Baxters. You know, they did not, um, although they suffered through many tropical diseases, God kept them alive. Yes. Um, yeah. But it's a constant. It is. And actually, we have a photograph uh, we, taken from their passport application in 1949 when they renew their passports mm -hmm. in order to go home. And the photograph, which we can put in the video version, clearly shows the toll taken on them by years of strain and, and of illness. They both. They both look as though they've, they've suffered. Yeah. Um, but what happens to them? Well, they're, but they're, they're very reluctant to leave, even in 1949. Years earlier, you know, we were talking about how in 1935 he had to go back. His return from medical leave was delayed until 1937 due to the after effects of tuberculosis and pernicious anemia. Which this required stuff. This is very serious illness, which required months of treatment. And this is where you can say... If, if it had been 20 years earlier, he would have died. But by the 1930s, medical medicine has advanced enough that they can treat things like this. And, for, and fortunately for him, it's not too far from Central America back to the United States. He can pretty readily get from where he's serving, even though he's serving in sometimes mountainous and jungle regions, 
but it's not going to be too long before he can get on a ship and then you just cross the Caribbean Sea and the Gulf of Mexico. You're in the United States. You can be put into an Adventist sanitarium. It takes days, weeks, not weeks, weeks and months. Weeks and months, exactly. Mm -hmm. And But, you know, if, 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 he'd been, if he'd been there in the 1890s or first decade of the 20th century, Gone. he was dead. He was dead. Um, in 1937, so ill was William that the General Conference officers actually voted to place him on sustentation which is what they called the church's retirement pension back then. Sustentation was what you went on for your retirement. Okay. And so he's only in his 50s, but he's so ill that the general conference officers say, right, he can't go back. We will put him onto, onto a pension already. Mm. And you, I quoted the Inter-American Division President Roberts and his statement that they would willingly sacrifice their lives to the third angel's message. To that, he actually added the following, how much better it would be for them to remain in America. So church leaders, he, Baxter doesn't have to ask to be not sent back to the mission field. He doesn't yeah, have to they're, ask. They're saying, keep him there. The, the, inter, the, the local leaders are saying, keep him in America. And the church leaders in America are saying, right, we will give him a pension early because he's already endured so much. But William objected strongly to the attempt to save his life. He actually appealed the decision to put him on, on a pension. And he, then he obtained a positive medical certification from, one of, from Washington Sanitarium. They said, no, he is now recovered. He can go back. And he volunteered not just to return to Central America, but to serve in the Upper Magdalena Mission in Colombia, which he wrote was, this is what he said, it's a very needy field and has never as yet been fully organized and manned, for no one has remained there long enough to do this. Because it's, 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 it's difficult and it's almost da it's dangerous. And so that's where he's volunteering to go back to. And it's a long-term commitment by definition. Yes, and a man who has been a union president is saying, no, I'll go and be president, I'll go and be in charge of this remote mission, which is too dangerous for anyone to stay in long. And also, again, it's a demotion in terms of the denominational hierarchy. But he doesn't seem to care very much about that at all. He doesn't care. No, he, he's, he's, he's literally selfless, not only in his disregard for his life, which we might actually regard as being a little too careless of his wife and children. Yeah, mm -hmm. but his wife and, uh, is supportive, but he's also selfless in that he just doesn't care about the hierarchy. He's not concerned about climbing the greasy pole, as the saying goes. It occurred to me, or it called to me, that it's the third angel's message. Not the three, the third, which yes. is the, the heaven or hell message. It's like, the, yep. the, you know, God or the beast, pick one. Um, what's happening theologically around that time that would It's a good question. It's a good question. I mean, what you have to remember is that Adventists believe that the first and second angel's messages had been fulfilled by the Millerites. Mm -hmm. So it's own, for a long time, Adventists saw their mission as being the third angel's message. Because the Millerites had covered the the, yes. the first two, yes, you know, leaving Babylon was the was come out of her, yeah, come out of the churches that don't believe that Jesus is coming, and 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 that was it. So, from the outset, Adventists believed their mission was the third angel's message. Yes. Now, eventually, in the twentieth century, as we study and think about it more, we realize that there is still an applicability for the world today for the first and second angel's messages. Mm -hmm. And so today we would talk about the three angels' messages, and indeed our evangelists and theologians do that, and indeed there's a great emphasis on that by the church at the moment. Yes. But for the first 60 years or so, 
it was very much the third angel's message. But there's some, there's another theological current which is worth noting, which is when you read what missionaries themselves write, and they don't always write about what it is they're doing, but very often they do. And in the early 20th century, they're constantly talking about Jesus, about Christ. And there are those who say that Adventism before the 1970s didn't know about righteousness by faith and, and Christ's righteousness and so forth. You, you've heard that. Yes, I have. And, and you still hear it even occasionally today. Um, in fact, more than occasionally. But that's not the case. Early Adventist missionaries regularly talk about what they're doing as spreading the word of Christ. And, they'll, and regularly they'll say, I have to tell people about Jesus because if I don't, who will? Mm -hmm. And Or they'll, they'll couch it as an appeal. If we don't do this, who will do this? Mm -hmm. These are people who need to hear about Jesus, to hear the good news, as we would say. Yeah. These are people who need to hear about Jesus. Who's going to tell them? It needs to be you. This is couched in the terms of, of an appeal to their, their friends or their family, or sometimes in an article that gets published in a church uh, magazine or journal. Who's going to tell them about Jesus? These people need to hear about Christ. So early Adventist missionaries are totally Christ-centered, sir. The idea that they're only concerned about the law is, is a really deep-seated misunderstanding of what Adventist missionaries were like. The law does not motivate you to give your life for others. No. It, it, <laughs> it's never done it. Um, here's a more nuanced question. In the, in, in the U.S. and in Europe, you had... Um, a lot of criticism against the Bible and against the supernatural nature of, of the revelation of the Bible, to the point that we we try to respond to that with we believe the Bible is 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 the word of God and maybe we go too far into the verbal inspiration front yes. at some point in the yeah it happened in the early twentieth century, but that wasn't happening in the field. I mean that wasn't happening in the missionary field. That was not happening in Venezuela and. And those islands that was not happening in Africa. How do the missionaries handle this? The the difference between the conversation back home, which must have been different, because they are trying to help people understand the most basic elements of Christ. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the, did they not care? Um, it's you know we don't know necessarily a lot about that, but one of the things we do know is that missionaries who spend a lot of time overseas feel very alienated when they come home. They feel very dislocated. And that's partly just because they've been outside the culture for a long time, and cultures change. Um, and so they left what was one culture, and they come back, and it's very different. But I'm sure part of it is that religious conversation, that for them, their whole life has re revolved around communicating Christian Christianity at its most basic and essential, mm -hmm. the really essential parts of Christianity. Yeah. Um, and then they go back and discover that society is, is, is questioning whether the Gospels are even true. Um, the, and not just, not just atheists or agnostics. Yeah, Protestant yeah. theologians in, in, in major seminaries and universities are questioning whether you can accept all of the, the books of the New Testament mm -hmm. as being inspired as to whether all of the Gospel events happened. This must be incredibly strange to people who've been doing what the missionaries have been doing, where their whole life has revolved around the Gospels and sharing the Gospel. But it isn't unique to them. If, you, if you're a missionary that left 10 years ago, say, and you've gone to the mission field, and then 
you come back and there are new interpretations of scripture now, especially to do with human sexuality. Yes. You're like, what's going on? This is very different from when I left. So there is always this moving conversation theologically that must shock missionaries who have left for a while. Yeah, I think that's true. Today, of course, you don't have, because partly because jet travel is so easy, you don't have missionaries serving 20, 30, 40 mm-hmm. years in places so much. Um, back then, when it took you months to get there, there wasn't much point coming home again after just three or five years. So you would you spend a long furlough at home. Yeah, you'd have to have a furlough every eight to 10 years. Yeah. Sometimes for some missionaries less frequently, but you would spend a year. You would spend a year on furlough. Um, and we also have social media and news that you can keep in touch with what's going on at home. Yeah. Although there is, there is something to be said about avoiding that. I think uh, for missionaries, otherwise you are constantly comparing and contrasting. Yes. And you are seeing and comparing and contrasting, which is difficult because you're in the mission field. You need to dive right in. And you need to live on the terms of the people you're living among. Yeah. Well, the, William Baxter was accepted to go back to Inter-America, and he spent six years in that upper Magdalena mission um, and helped grow the membership from 200 to 900 in those six years. That's amazing. Look, you've got some people that use doctor's notes to get away from apartments. Yeah. And, and here's one who's saying, saying, find me a doctor. Find me a doctor who will send me back. Absolutely. <laughs> Don't give me this negative result. I'm not having it. Um, so that's how William and Werner come to spend so many years in the inter-American region, the northern part of South, of South America, but also in the Central America and, and a few years in the Caribbean. Um, their children also served as missionaries. The older of the, uh, their children was a daughter, Elizabeth, who had been born in Jamaica. And as an adult, she taught at Central American Academy in Costa Rica for nearly three years, 1927 to 29. The younger child was William E. Baxter, Jr. He and his wife, Marion, went to Columbia in 1938. So this is when their parents are still serving as missionaries Mm -hmm. in Columbia and Venezuela. Uh, He went in 1938 where he was a coal porter and evangelist for two years. Then he served as a pastor and evangelist in Venezuela for five years. And then he taught Bible at Adventist seminaries in Mexico for nine years from 1946 to 54. After four years pastoring back in the States, Bill and Marion returned to Mexico. They taught Bible at Monte Morelos University for six years. And then they went home again. And then 13 years later, age 60 and 59, they returned to Mexico. Bill working in aviation ministry until 1980. So Bill and Marion in all spent 26 years in service. To the people of Central I never, America. I did not anticipate aviation ministry at the end. <laughs> well, by now you're getting into the 70s. So, huh. you know, yeah, it's, it, it almost spans the century. Um, you know, they go out in the early 1910s and the sun serves there until 1980. That's beautiful. And when we look, Sam, at the church in what we call the inter-American division, which is Central America, the Caribbean, and Venezuela and Colombia, the two northernmost countries of South America. The church there is massive and has been for a number of years. And when we say why, the answer is, as I said at the beginning, we don't want to underestimate the role of local people because especially in that division, they are tremendous at witnessing. Yes. Um, And they are tremendous in support of public evangelism. 
But we would never have got to the stage where the church was capable of growing itself without missionaries like the Baxters, who literally, when, when, when the division president says they would willingly give their lives to Central America, that's not rhetoric. They don't give their lives, but they willingly would have and they, because they come very close to it. They almost do many times. It's, it reminds me of the parable of the sower, that you have different fields. And in the end, it says that when it finds the good soil, it would yield fruit a hundred to one. And if Baxter could be woken up from his, his sleep. sleep in Jesus and could see everything that happened um, or how the church is today, it is much more than a hundred to one yes. considering his initial effort. A hundred percent, absolutely. Well, thank you for joining us for this episode of Mission 150 where we were talking about the Baxter family and growth in Central and South America. Please keep watching Mission 150 on Adventist Review TV, on the Seventh-day Adventist Church's YouTube channel, or listening on your favorite podcast platform. And if you have enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. Now, if you want to know more about Adventist missionary work and missionaries today, go to AdventistMission.org. That's AdventistMission.org. And if you want to find mission opportunities today, opportunities for service, go to vividfaith.com. Sam and I will be back next week with more on the inspiring history of Adventist mission around the world. Mm -hmm.